Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 29th, 2020, and my guest is Jenny Schutz, a fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings. She writes extensively on land use regulations, zoning, and other urban issues, and those are our, our topics for today. Jenny, welcome to Econ Talk. Good to be here. Thank you. You wrote in a recent essay, the process of building new homes is full of uncertainty and unexpected obstacles. Regulatory barriers make it riskier, longer, and more expensive, which has consequences for housing affordability. Uh, Let's talk about that. What are some of those uh, regulatory barriers? So the procedural barriers are one of the parts that I think don't get talked about enough. When you own a piece of land, you can't go out and just build a house or an office building on top of it. You have to go to the local government that controls it and ask them for permission to build something. Um, Particularly if you think about, say, a subdivision on the edge of a city, a developer may buy a piece of farmland. They then have to get the land rezoned from its current use, which is agriculture, to residential. And there is a negotiation process that happens. So the developer will ask the local government, I'd like to build some houses. Maybe I want to build 500 houses here. And the local government can go back and forth and say, well, we're okay with you building some houses, but instead of 500, we're only going to let you build 250, and we're going to require you to leave a third of the space as open space and have that landscaped. So there's this back and forth negotiation just to get the permission to start moving forward. There can be a lot of other layers on top of that. So almost always there has to be some kind of an environmental impact review. In the D.C. area, we worry about runoff into the Chesapeake Bay, for instance, So developers have to manage their runoff during the construction process so that nothing, no sort of toxic chemicals run into water and wind up in the the bay. Um, So there are a whole layer of procedures, often different agencies within the same local government. So you may have to go through zoning, environmental review. uh, You have to get the fire marshal to sign off on the plan that you're going to have access roads that fire trucks can get in on. Um, So there are a whole bunch of different processes that the developer has to go through, typically even before they start the construction. So what we often think of as sort of the beginning of building houses, which is uh, construction crews showing up, that's actually pretty far into it. And you're talking about in this particular case, a housing development on the edge of town. Uh, Let's talk about a more um, complicated case, which I think in the literature is called infill, which is a really bizarre word, but it means filling in uh, a space or parcel of land, say, in an urban area. So we're in in a downtown um, metropolitan area, could be D.C. or anywhere, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, and there's some property that's not being used for housing. It could be a parking lot. It could be uh, an existing structure that's, for whatever reason, say retail only. And a developer wants to buy that property and turn it into a multifamily, say, apartment building or a set of condos um, or a mix of retail and condos uh, and housing. Um, is that more complicated? 
it's usually more complicated to do some kind of an infill development, um, in part just because you have a lot of neighbors. So the advantage of a, a subdivision that was originally a farm is that nobody lives around it. Um, and it turns out neighbors don't really like change. Um, that's true for almost all neighbors everywhere. Um, so the, the parking lot example is a good one because we've seen a lot of that for instance, downtown Los Angeles had a lot of surface parking lots, and that's been a good location to build housing. Um, but you still have this negotiation. So it's currently zoned for a parking lot. Maybe you can build housing on it um, just directly. But infill development, you have to think about the individual parcel. So one of the complicated things is that every parcel of land there is a little bit different. What's the width and the depth of the parcel? Is that what will hold an appropriate size building? Um, if you have existing neighbors on both sides and they have windows, you may not be able to build close to the neighbors because you'll block their view or their light access. Um, an existing in-pill parcel, there's also a good chance you're going to have to do some kind of remediation. So a piece of land that's been a parking lot for cars for the last 40 years is going to have some level of environmental contamination because all of the oil and chemicals from the car has seeped into the land. So you first have to scrape off the asphalt and then you have to dig down and clean that out. Um, one of the really big issues with uh, infill development is whether or not parking is required. Um, it turns out that most people still drive to work and want to have a place to park their car. So if you're building an apartment building, you may need to do structured parking underneath the ground. Um, structured parking is expensive. Uh, it's expensive to dig out the land. It's expensive to build. If you're doing this in California, you have seismic issues to worry about. And so the negotiation with the local government may include how many parking spaces do I need to build for an apartment or condo building? Um, the developer would like to build less to save some money. The local government probably wants more. And the neighbors are going to show up and say, well, if you don't build enough parking, then we're going to have more people parking in the streets in front of our buildings, and we don't want that. So those are some of the, the typical issues that are more likely to come up with an infill project. We like to think in America, some people do, um, that we have private property and the rule of law. Uh, I remember my, I probably mentioned this once ages ago on Econ Talk. I remember when my oldest son, who was probably about 10 at the time, and I explained to him that you can't build a uh, building in your backyard at, if you want uh, without some approval, and it may just be illegal. Uh, and his reaction was, how is that possible? Isn't this America? And of course, in America, we put a lot of strings on land, but one of the more complicated strings, which I find deeply disturbing uh, in the rule of law part and in the desirability of having a regime of property rights that's predictable, uh, is that veto power of various groups. So when you said neighbors can can be heard, what does that mean exactly? In different, Obviously, it's very different in different cities, the number of hoops you have to jump through, the approvals you have to get to, and many of them the part I really think is is destructive, are discretionary. They are not, well, you complied with the rules. You knew going in advance what the rules were. You comply with them. You have permission. Yeah, that's not the way it works. So talk about some of the uh, discretionary aspects that city councils and boards have in various cities. Most of the development that we see, especially in infill locations, is really discretionary at this point. Um, so every sort of stage in the process is going to require some kind of a public approval 
One of the complicated things is that this process is different in every city and town and county, so there's really no standardization. Um, So you may have to go before the city council to get your permission granted. You may have to go through, um, the. there may be a zoning board of appeals, which is usually sort of an appointed group uh, appointed by the mayor or the council, but independent of the council. Sometimes you have to go through both. You may have to go through a historic preservation board. Um, So just figuring out who the people or the groups and agencies are that you need to talk to and ask for permission can be pretty complicated. Um, The order in which you do this may be laid out, but often it's not. So one of the things that developers complain about is that they don't even, it's not like there's a known sequence. You have 50 different groups you have to talk to, but here's the order in which you go. And once you get approval from one, that makes it easier to get the next one. Sometimes the processes run simultaneously. Sometimes you have to do one before the other. Sometimes one will ask you to make a change that then negates the decision you got from a previous group. So there's really no the sort of written down roadmap for how to get things built and even how to get the approvals done. And it may strike some listeners as, well... So you have to wait a while to get permission. And so it's frustrating. It's a little bit annoying. Uh, there's all these, you have to have some lawyers, presumably, and experts to deal with these roadblocks. But um, it affects the price of the unit eventually, ultimately. Um, why? Explain that. All of this stuff costs money. Um, so I think the, the process that we have at the moment is a really terrific process if you are a land use lawyer or consultant because you make your money off of this. Or an existing homeowner, as we'll see. Existing landowner, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, But because the process is very complicated, it involves a lot of time for the developer to do this. Um, And so the developer often has to hire specialized consultants or attorneys to tackle different pieces of this. Um, So there's the the direct cost of the developer's time, the cost of all of the experts that they're hiring and paying to do this. Um, You know, for instance, say that the neighbors don't like the material you're proposing to use for the exterior of the building, which is something that comes up a lot. The neighbors will say, oh, I don't like the cladding. It looks cheap. I want you to use brick or I want you to use fiberglass or something. Then you have to go back and talk to your architects. Your architect has already billed you some hours. Now the architect has to revise the plan, so you're paying the architect for more hours. Every single request, every pushback turns into real time, and somebody is getting paid for that time. But just the time itself is a problem. Explain. The time makes it really difficult for developers to get their product on the market when it needs to be available. Um, So in an ideal universe, a developer would start building a couple years before they anticipate the market really needing more units. And by the time the units are finished and ready, they can rent them up and fill them and they don't sit vacant for a while. Uh, One of the things that we learned in the Great Recession, many of these big projects are taking a decade or longer So people started working on projects in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and those projects finished just as we hit the Great Recession, and then buildings just sat empty. Had they finished four years earlier, they could have at least gotten people in there. Even if they took a hit on the price, they would at least have bodies moving into the new buildings. But there's also just the foregone rent, the fact you're not earning anything over over this period. All that money that's, that's being spent without any return, the longer that goes. So let's say... Let's say you spent, uh, you could spend it all up front uh, to make it simple. You, you just had to pay a big fee, and it would cover your architect and your lawyers and your uh, surveyors and whatever else was needed, and then, of course, the raw materials. But you can't build for two years 
and now let's say, but you can't build for five, you can't build for 10. Every extension of that downtime where nothing's coming in, only stuff is going out, is stuff that you need to be compensated for. And the, and the, mar- the marketplace will compensate you for that because otherwise you're losing money. That's right. I mean, this is a risky business because the developers essentially have to front a lot of this. Um, They take on loans once you get to, say, the construction stage. So you can get a loan from a bank to do the actual building. But banks don't like to lend for sort of the development process, the approvals process. For maybes. They don't like maybes. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So banks don't want to lend you money to spend the next five years paying Uh, paying consultants and lawyers to go through a process. And then at the end of the process, they still say no, and you can't build anything. So developers essentially have to come up with the equity to do that themselves. You can imagine this really limits the sphere of who can be a developer and who can build. Um, So you have to have pretty deep pockets, or you have to be a company that has a bunch of projects going on in different stages of completion um, so there's actually a nice paper out by a, um, an economist at the Federal Reserve Board who looks at how the big home building companies essentially cross-finance different parts of their company. So you have cash flows coming in from one project, use that to finance the development of the next one. Um, but most developers work in one location, and they don't want to take on too many of these projects simultaneously because any one of them could wind up being a bust. And the area itself could be a bust in a certain period of time. Uh, and you'd like to have some diversification and be in lots of cities. But since they're all complicated in different ways, it's hard to be involved in lots of different cities at the same time. So you tend to have all your eggs in that one local basket. Uh, And also, thinking about this, you realize that the number of firms that can acquire the kind of expertise you need to deal with this regulatory uh, thicket it's something akin to the pharmaceutical industry where, you know, if you can't com- – if you're not big and large to spread the cost of FDA compliance over lots of products, you're done. And so what we've – for better or for worse, what we've done with the pharmaceutical industry is we've created a world where the large firms, they do their own research. But part of what they really are, tragically to me, is compliant experts, compliance experts. They know how to get through the FDA a small firm can't do that, can't afford it, can't acquire the expertise uh, easily, and they are going to develop some products. They'll sell those to the larger firm because they're the ones who know how to shepherd it through the different trials, clinical stages of clinical trials. Something similar is going on here, it would seem to me, where your the regulatory burden can only be borne by large, a very small number of large firms, which, of course, reduces competition and raises prices a little further probably. That's exactly right. Um, And you can see the difference in industry structure across different markets. So the less regulated markets where there's a a shorter period to development and a more straightforward process tend to have more small-scale developers who do a handful of units a year, a handful of projects. The big, complicated, expensive markets only have a couple of developers who work there, who developed expertise, relationships with the local government. They know how the system works and how to get through it. Um, And one of the things that we've seen since the Great Recession is that the number of development firms has gone down. A bunch of guys just went bankrupt in the recession because they were holding on to assets that became worthless. Um, But also it's become so complicated and expensive, the little guys just can't keep going. Um, And so the big firms are the only ones that can really do business and get through this. And this reminds me also a little bit of finance, uh, the financial sector, where Having friends in high places is unfortunately an important part of the business. I, 
I, I don't want to be unfair to my student, former students who I know and, and some family friends who are in the real estate business, but it, it seems to be um, a business that demands a certain, how shall I say it, level of cronyism, um, a comfort and connection to the powers that be. Because, and as time passes and you continue to have that relationship, you donate to their campaigns, um, you get more likely to get favors taken care of. There's, there's a certain inherent corruption and, and non-market aspect, it strikes me, in real estate. It's amazing it works as well as it does, so I sometimes think when I get depressed about it. Um, do you think that's a little too cynical, that cronyism thing? The developers definitely have to know the system and have connections um, but interestingly, even the developers that are pretty well connected, it's not like they can just call up the mayor and get their project <laughs> approved, because ultimately, a lot of the pushback is coming from neighborhoods. It's coming from small groups of organized voters who, as it turns out, also have sway over elected officials. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, if, if Mayor Bowser in D.C. gets a call from a real estate developer who says, my project is hung up, can you make things move a little bit far, faster um, but on the other line, she's got 50 constituents calling up and saying, we don't want this thing to go through. At the moment, it looks like the neighbors are winning. And yeah, let's talk about that. So um, a longstanding concept here on our program uh, comes from Bruce Yandel, the bootlegger and Baptist idea. So the phrase comes from uh, the days of uh, when often Sunday liquor sales were banned. So the bootleggers like that a lot because it means you can't go to a store. You got to go to the guy out in the back of his truck who's got a still out in the country. Uh, the Baptists like it because it's the Lord's Day and they don't want um, they don't want people uh, carousing on the Lord's Day. So there's this weird coalition of of high-minded folks, people who are not thinking necessarily about themselves, and sort of very self-interested folks who have a profit motive involved. And one way to think about that is uh, politics makes strange bedfellows. I think the deeper insight, uh, there's many of them, I think, from Bruce's idea, but the deeper insight is that the bootleggers are really focused on this, and they're focused on the details. They're not just focused on uh, the general idea. So a, a Baptist, and I'll take a simple example, um, uh, the tobacco master settlement, a lot of people thought, well, tobacco is bad. We ought, to, we ought to not make it easy to buy and sell. So they all, a lot of people just thought, well, this is a good thing, this tobacco thing. Uh, the tobacco companies spend a lot of time crafting the tobacco settlement and, um, and working with the attorneys general. And they made sure it helped them uh, as much as they could. And it actually did help. Unfortunately, I think it helped turn their industry into a cartel, it made it really hard. For entrance, and that changed the ability of people to innovate. And we had to do this ridiculous end around of e-cigarettes as a, a way that that was to cope with that, rather than say lower uh, harm actual tobacco products. So it, it's a really ugly process, often the bootlegger and Baptist phenomenon, because the Baptist gives the politician cover. The politician always says, "You know, I'm just listening to my." You know, the, the, it's the Lord's Day, and I'm trying to protect the, the sanctity of the Sabbath. Whereas he's telling the bootlegger, thanks for the money. It's going to work out fine for you. And let, let me take your help in how this, this legislation is actually written. Um, so in this case, how does that work out? Well, 
you mentioned the neighbors upset about the cladding or the thing, and that's a Baptist idea. Like, who wants an ugly building? I mean, everyone cares about that. It's a negative externality or parking. Certainly, it's unfair. Uh, it would be uh, a negative externality for a new building to not have any parking. That imposes parking costs, and the people already live around there. It also, there's congestion and so on. But, of course, there's a bootlegger motive there, too, which is the neighbors are often, not always, but are often care about their pocketbook and their personal financial stake in this, which is the more development there is, the lower land values will be. And what we've done, in my view, is privileged existing uh, homeowners and property owners uh, and given a, created a process that allows them to veto things that make them poorer. And I think it's really bad for the country. We'll talk about that in a minute, but um, react to the bootlegger Baptist thing. I think that's exactly right. Um, and it's the neighbors who are protesting sometimes believe that they're doing this out of very good motives. And they could be. And they could be. Yeah. So, you know, in California, there are a lot of people who say, I care a lot about the environment and we shouldn't be building more. It's bad for the environment. We should have slower population growth. We should have lots of trees instead of buildings. Um, and some of them truly believe that. Some of them are being pretty direct that they are worried about the impact on their property values. I will say that we have created a, we've created a whole generation of people who have become millionaires by sitting on dirt. They haven't done anything. They bought a house in the right place at the right time and stayed there. So they've had enormous wealth gains, almost none of which are taxed because our tax system isn't set up that way. And they're worried about new development that at most is going to sort of cap the increase of their value in future, but it's not going to erase the gains that they've had. I mean, most of the development that we're talking about isn't at the scale that it's really going to make that much difference to neighborhood property values. But, of course, the tragedy there is that uh, the people who'd like to move into those locations, either because where they live now is not economically um, viable, they're, they're struggling to find opportunities, they like to move from, a, say, a rural area to the city, they can't get a toehold or a foothold, uh, and then they can't express their views politically. That Their voice is silent because naturally that mayor you're talking about or the city council member is listening to the people who live there already, not a future voter who might live there tomorrow. And that just um, kind of cries out for some kind of um, national remedy. We'll talk about that later. But uh, I, I think it's important to keep in mind here that uh, certainly people who've bought property with the expectation of, of appreciation, you can understand that they're not going to like the idea that they might not make as much as they would have hoped or might even lose money. We all understand that. But the cost of that is really severe. It, it, it is discouraging people from moving there. And I think maybe more importantly, it's encouraging people to leave who can no longer afford to stay in those areas. And uh, the, that combination seems to me to be uh, extremely destructive. It is. The, the very hyper-local decision-making over development doesn't serve the larger region or the country particularly well. So allowing a neighborhood within a city or a you know, relatively small residential suburb to make decisions about what can and can't get built when that has implications for employers and for the economic growth of an entire metropolitan area. And in, you know, to a certain extent now, California, New Jersey, Massachusetts have statewide problems. Local governments are making decisions and neighborhoods are making decisions that affect the state's economy and their ability to grow. You're exactly right that the, the problem is the only people 
who get to vote, who get to put direct political pressure on elected officials, or the people who already live there, the people who would benefit from the new housing live in another jurisdiction altogether. We also, we see really big differences in the rate of voting between homeowners and renters. So renters in a jurisdiction would benefit from having more housing, keep their rents from rising, might give them more opportunities, But renters don't turn out to vote as much. They definitely don't turn out to community meetings to protest the way homeowners do. Um, And some of that is because they, you know, renters are more likely to have, say, multiple jobs. They're younger. They may have kids. Maybe planning to leave in the next six months, five years if they don't have the stake in the area. It takes an enormous amount of time and energy out of your sort of your personal life to show up and engage with a community meeting If you don't have the time to do that, or if you think my voice isn't going to be heard, why would you do that? So let's talk about some of the, uh, what we know about the consequences of these uh, decisions. And I just want to say as an example, I mean, I I think this is a true story. Maybe you know of the story and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, there was a laundromat. This is a reductio ad absurdum, but sometimes a reductio ad absurdum is, is informative. A laundromat in a parking lot in San Francisco that a developer wanted to turn into, I think, eight condominiums. So the first thing he had to do is prove that the laundromat didn't have historical significance. So that took a while, but eventually historians agreed it was not historically important. Uh, eventually, the project was killed. It took about five years. Uh, so it was up in the air for a while. Uh, well, not ever really up in the air. It was down on the ground, never got up in the air. But the decision was up in the air for about five years. I think it's in limbo right now. But the thing that ultimately killed it was the uh, shadows that the building would cast over a park where children played, even though those shadows would not be cast when children were actually playing there. And it's basically, nothing's changing here, folks. Don't even think about, (laughs) I mean, to invest five years for nothing uh, which I think is a common problem. Uh, it, it must be. Uh, it must be very uh, discouraging, obviously. So obviously, that in a place that's growing economically, where people are wanting to move there, and you're capping effectively capping the uh, increase in housing is going to cause rents to and land prices to rise. But the other thing that's going on, you know, we had a Lamberto on the program uh, last year. And I, I talked about how informative this was for me. If we go back to a city 100 years ago, 50 years ago even, uh, there was a wider range of housing choices for uh, new arrivals. Some were in beautiful, fancy, massively expensive spots. Some were much smaller. And what he talked about, among other things, was the role that minimum square footage causes and keeping prices high, and not just that you can't have as many units, but also the fact that an option that a really poor person might want, which is an inexpensive, small, what we might call a hovel, to be really blunt about it, people might be willing to live in a hovel, uh, meaning a, a, a tiny, small place, because they really care about that location. They want to be in midtown Manhattan, or they want to be in downtown D.C. or off at DuPont Circle, and they're not allowed to by law. So, you know, we've talked about some of the range of hearings and other things, but there are these specific things that they are black and white. They're not discretionary, but they have a very bad effect, I think, on the scope and uh, breadth of, of housing choices that people can make. Talk about that. Yeah, there's a whole range of things that are basically just illegal to build at this point. 
Um, most cities and even central cities, big places, New York, San Francisco, D.C., have just outlawed multifamily building on two-thirds to three-quarters of their land. So you just can't build apartments, period. Um, it's not just the zoning code. We've also got things built into, for instance, building codes. Um, so I've been doing some research recently on kind of the demise of boarding houses. You know, the idea that you used to be able to have essentially, a, you know, like a single family, large single family house, but you could turn that into a boarding house. There was one kitchen for the house. And so the landlord would provide meals for tenants at certain times. But you didn't have the idea that every single dwelling unit needed to have a freestanding kitchen and bathroom. You know, you probably had one or two bathrooms that everybody shared. You had one kitchen that tenants didn't even have access to. And people just rented a room. That was all you needed was a space. And we've seen the iterations, you know, this used to be sort of kind of working class or even middle class phenomenon in big cities. Um, then boarding houses turned into SROs, which were a very cheap option. Which stands for? Single room occupancy. Uh-huh. Um, so essentially that you would just rent a room in a house to sleep in, um, and you also didn't have to have a long-term lease. So for poor people, coming up with a month's uh, advance rent uh, for a security deposit is a lot of money if you have to pay for a full year. Um, but being able to rent a room for a week or a month at a time is something that's more affordable. We no longer have any of these cheap options. So small units, fitting a lot of units onto one piece of land – things that are not a complete housing unit with kitchen and bath, shorter-term leases, you know, all of these options that we used to have where poor people could find a place to live that wasn't their car or the sidewalk, we've basically made those all illegal. And when I talk about this, um, we talked in, in that Berto episode about uh, Chelsea, Chelsea neighborhood in New York, which is a really beautiful neighborhood, really low buildings and some of the most expensive real estate in the world. And it gives a certain nice look and feel on his reaction. And I was saying, you know, it's, uh, people like walking around there. And he said, yeah, but it means poor people can't live there. And when I told someone else that their reaction was, well, they're trying to, they don't like poor people, you know. Um, talk about some of the roots of of zoning and land use restriction in, that were driven by racism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the zoning sort of became a bigger part of the U.S. Most local governments adopted it either in kind of the the teens and the 20s, and then there was another wave after World War II. Um, But a lot of current zoning was explicitly racist. So um, when you couldn't have racially restrictive covenants, you instead adopted zoning that required new houses to be large and expensive. Um, If you can't legally discriminate by race, you can discriminate based on income, and that's still okay. And so that's what a lot of places do now. Okay, meaning legally okay, but not not really okay, because it was really designed to keep out poorer people who happen to be black. It's not ethically okay, but it's legal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's what a lot of places do now, is they write these zoning rules and building codes that mean that new housing is going to have to be very expensive, Snooty white suburbs are fine with black people moving in as long as they're a CEO and can buy a $2 million house. But nobody gets to move in unless they can afford a $2 million house. Of course, there's a side effect of that, which is that if the best schools or even only the decent schools are in those neighborhoods, poor people are priced out of that. And it makes it a lot harder for their children to rise. It's it, I find it uh, deeply distressing, and I wish we could do something about it. But let's um, put that aside for the moment. Now, the... The boarding house phenomenon, I just want to say as a footnote that in 1976, I think it was 76, I lived here in D.C. in Hartnett Hall. Maybe some listeners there have either walked by Hartnett Hall or have uh, uh, stayed there perhaps. It was 
just a block or so off of DuPont Circle. It's been since gentrified, turned into a really nice set of offices. But in those days, it was a boarding house. Uh, I got a bedroom. That was it. No access to kitchen. Uh, I got wonderful access. I was on the first floor, so I could hear the sirens going all night when D.C. was a less safe place. And when my dad came to visit, he said, well, this isn't so bad. I said, Dad, that's a cockroach on the bed. And remember, I didn't have a kitchen or any food in there. It, it, it was... Um, I wouldn't say it was a hovel, but it, it wasn't fancy. It wasn't nice, but I was 22 years old, and it was, was great for rent? I loved it. I don't remember. I want to say $75, but that's just the first number that comes into my head. Um, so similar to the minimum size uh, thing, banning boarding houses, SROs, um, single room occupancy, uh, is going to effectively not just lower the total number of units available in the area, meaning higher rents, it's closing off an entire part of the market that is, quote, lower quality. But it's a quality that a lot of people are very eager to pay for because they can't afford anything else and they'd like to be in that location. So that's one thing. So it seems to me, though, that we've got these two end arounds to this problem right now. We have Airbnb, which is a is a single-room occupancy solution. And then we have these uh, companies. I've heard of a couple of them. I can't remember the names off the top of my head. Well, link to them, where it's a dorm. It's, a, it's the old-fashioned boarding house. It's a bunch of bunk beds in a big public space. There's a kitchen, and some of these are very um, downscale, and some are super upscale. The upscale ones have a really nice kitchen that's shared, a really nice public space for throwing a party, might have a gym. But the whole idea is that your square footage that belongs to you is a bedroom that has a lock in, on it. It's not an apartment. It's something like an apartment. And that's allowing, in certain cities, I don't know if it's everywhere, but in certain cities, um, the opportunity for poor people, lower income or people who don't want to pay as much and are willing to trade off quality and quantity and location to have a foothold. Uh, so how are they getting around these these restrictions? Do you know? Yeah, there are a couple of different ways that I've seen companies are doing Are they getting this. special permission for, for this kind of a, one unit or? Yeah, they. I mean, they'll they'll have to get some sort of a, a waiver, either either a zoning waiver or a variance. Um, there there are some places that technically do still have an allowance to build something like a boarding house or a hotel. So they often get regulated like hotels instead of like apartment buildings. Um, there are a couple of different ways that I've seen this done. Uh, at the high end, they've rebranded this as co living. Yeah. So it's basically like a college dorm and a pretty fancy one. So it has a lot of amenities. Some of those actually do have kind of small kitchenettes in the units. It's not just a bedroom. Um, But those are expensive. Those are not any cheaper than just renting an apartment. They're essentially marketing it saying you get this social aspect to living. It's not so much that this is a cheaper way to live. Um, but I, there, I think there are a couple of companies in California that are doing this more sort of a big open space with a bunch of bunk beds. I mean, it's like staying in a youth hostel or the yeah. YMCA or something. Yeah, and I, I think the one of the ways they're getting permission to do this is that they're at the same time offering to, to have some of the units uh, below market price. And this is a way I, find, I think this is a super bootleg from Baptist thing. This is a way the politician can say, oh, I'm not – this isn't about um, you know allowing a bunch of people to get special privileges. I, we're we're caring about the poor. These are the upscale ones, uh, and it's just the wrong way to help the poor. It's just uh, I think it's a, you know it's like a one off. It's a specialty thing, and it destroys the the political incentives to uh, to fix it. I think in much more more effective ways. And one thing that we should notice is that. 
poor people have to live somewhere. If you make cheap housing illegal, they will find whatever workaround they can. So obviously in places like California, we're seeing increasing homelessness rates. So people living, you know, sharing a, a place with family, people living in their cars. You know, San Jose has entire streets full of people living in RVs because they can't afford a house to live. Um, DC had a really tragic example about a year ago. There was a row house um, in Northwest that was not licensed to be an apartment building, but the owner of the house was renting out rooms mostly to immigrants who have not a lot of money and very few options and aren't going to complain that this is illegal and that the dwelling is poor quality. Um, and the row house caught fire and a bunch of people died. So people will find a place to live because they have to have a place to live. If we make it expensive and illegal to build reasonably safe housing that's cheap, then people will find illegal places that are dangerous to live instead. And yet, uh, a lot of people blame uh, that homelessness. Of course, many of the homeless are not homeless because they can't afford a house. They're homeless because they're struggling to deal with life uh, in all kinds of ways. Um, but there are a lot of people living in those RVs, a lot meaning more than one. It's a shocking thing. We, you know, I summer in Palo Alto, and there are certain blocks where I don't know whether the police turn a, an, a blind eye. It's sort of okay where people have lined up RVs and trailers. It's a strange, uh, and they're just living out of them. It raises a lot of questions we're, we're not going to uh, answer this moment. But I think a lot of people, when they see it, they go, see, landlords are really greedy. And they've exploited the existing uh, houses that they have, and they're making a killing, and they've pushed prices up so high. And this is all about uh, greedy landlords. I have to say that. I, I think I did a good job saying it with a straight face, didn't you think? You did. We're doing this face-to-face at the Hoover Institution in Washington, D.C., and um, I, was, I, I think I looked very empathetic. Do you feel I did a good job there? Absolutely. Thank yes. you, Jenny. Yeah, I hear that. It's not easy for me. I hear that argument a lot that this is just landlords being greedy and trying to squeeze extra money. Um, It's certainly true that landlords would rather charge a higher rent and take a profit if they can, but landlords can only charge what the market will bear. So, you know, in a well functioning market, if a landlord charges $2,000 for a studio apartment, Somebody else can charge $1,800 for studio apartment and they'll take the tenants. So you can only, landlords can only get away with that if there's a limited number of apartments and more people wanting to rent them than their units available. You know, I will say that um, I've looked at the dispersion of rents within metropolitan areas. So not just sort of what the median rent is, but the 75th percentile and the 25th percentile. And you see, when you look at the the bottom end, that there's really a floor below which rents don't fall, even in places like Detroit, where land is basically free. So it's hard to pay the minimum operating costs on an apartment for less than about $500 a month. So if you think of just paying the mortgage on the building, the property taxes, water and sewer, common electricity, and so forth, the stuff that the landlord has to pay to cover the cost of operating it doesn't go below about $500 a month. As opposed to abandoning it because it's a losing proposition. That's right. As opposed to just closing it down and taking it off the market altogether. Um, So, you know, that, and that's for sort of apartments that are good enough to meet our quality inspections you probably you you've got some illegal rentals that are cheaper than that but they're cheaper than that because mostly they're in pretty poor shape um so you know when you but when you look at a place like San Jose so the 25th percentile of rents in San Jose is about $1200 a month right that's close to the bottom 
that's not because it costs landlords $1,200 a month to run the apartment. That's because there's such limited supply that they can charge that. The best way to fight against greedy landlords is to flood the market with supply of new apartments and take away their market power. Some people argued that that won't work. Um, Again, I'm trying to say this with a straight face. Uh, They argued that supply won't work in this market. Usually, true, in in many markets, you add supply, you get lower prices, but in housing, it doesn't work that way. They have various stories they tell. What do we know about that? Is there evidence on that that might not be compelling to everybody? But what do we know about that? I mean, we know from the places that it's where it's easier to build housing and that has, have historically built a lot of new supply when there's demand, their prices are lower. Their prices just don't go up by as much. The hard part is that in places like California and New York and D.C. and Boston, we have underbuilt housing, especially multifamily rental housing, for 30 years. So there's an enormous pent-up demand. And if we build another 10,000 units of housing, it's not going to dent the Drop problem. The so the, the, you know, the, the people who say, if you build a bunch of new apartments, it's not going to make rents drop by 50% tomorrow are right. We have to build at really large scale for a long period of time, and we have to make this process cheaper. So part of it is all of the new construction is going to be very expensive because we've made it expensive to build. If we made it possible to throw up a 100-unit apartment building in two years with you know sort of the bare minimum of costs for land, construction, and materials, but without this regulatory cost, and just did that for the next decade, you would see softening of rents even in the expensive places – but I don't see any sign that we're getting to that soon. Yeah, we're going to talk, I hope, <clears throat> before we conclude, I have some ideas that I want to share with you that I've read about that might help us. But um, I think it's important. I just want to say something about the landlord, greedy landlord story. I assume landlords are greedy, by the way. Uh, they'd like more money. But they, as you point out, if there's competition, like, it's harder for them to get it. Um, and you have to deal with the fact that prices and rents have gone up dramatically over the last 30 years. Did they get greedier? Weren't they greedy in 1990? I mean, did suddenly a, a lower class of person get in the uh, more grasping? Uh, <clears throat> and so I, those kind of explanations are difficult over time. I just want to point that out. I want to say something, though, on behalf of zoning, uh, which doesn't come easy for me, but I want to say it. Um, you know, I spend time in the Bay Area. I was uh, fortunate enough to be in Paris this last month for the first time. And 30th wedding anniversary, wild applause. If you say you've been married for 30 years, people just share. It's an interesting phenomenon. Um, Paris is a beautiful city, a magnificent city. I was uh, overwhelmed by just how pleasant it is to walk along the streets and look at the stores, look at the architecture. And a lot, there's a lot of wrought iron uh, in Paris. I couldn't help but think, you know, in the 19th century, I ever had that um, franchise if it was a government thing was really made a killing uh because it's everywhere and part of the reason paris is beautiful is it's highly regulated you know the the buildings are all roughly the same height uh there is a weird little area that i guess i don't know if they call it downtown or le downtown uh where there's a bunch of tall buildings but everywhere else is pretty much the same yeah the eiffel tower towers over all of that territory around the the seine and um it's just magnificent uh its housing stock is gorgeous. You know, it, there's something magnificent about it. Similarly, you walk around San Francisco. There was an amazing photograph from the air recently that showed San Francisco is basically flat, not, not topologically, but 
all the buildings are low. <laughs> it's low density. Uh, there's a few little areas downtown where it's in, in the center of downtown that has that have high buildings, despite the uh, seismic issues, the earthquake issues. But it's basically flat, and it's an enormously underdeveloped city. Uh, it would be enormously cheaper to live there if, if it was even as developed as Paris, which is not very developed by New York, say, Manhattan, midtown Manhattan standards. And yet, so part of me says, you know, we've turned San Francisco and Paris into a museum. It's a beautiful museum. It's really pleasant to walk around. Um, there's a charm and a delight in it. And um, what do you think? That there's a wonderful benefit to this restrictive zoning and, and stasis also. The lack of dynamism, the lack of of opportunity to re, remake those cities has created a beautiful a work of art. Yeah. So Paris is a lot denser than San Francisco. Um, if we let San Francisco become Paris, it could still be lovely and charming, but you could That's house more people. Yeah. Um, I will say that you know Paris for has dealt with housing markets really differently. So the central part of Paris is low density and regulated and old and very rich. Um, Paris built all of its social housing in the suburbs. So if you go out to the banlieues surrounding it, you have what looks like public housing in the U.S. Um, very tall buildings and really poor. So they've kind of inverted what Ugly we do with too. a lot of our cities. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I, I love, I, I go to New York often, and I love walking around Greenwich Village. I love walking around the brownstone neighborhoods. I mean, they're beautiful. We would lose something if we allowed all of that to be redeveloped as skyscrapers. We don't have to redevelop all of the old housing, but we also don't need to keep all of it. So there needs to be some balance between keeping, particularly keeping some fragments of architecture so that people can see them, so that we know what we used to build in the past, but we have made too much of the older housing off limits for redevelopment at much lower densities than they need. People also think that in order to get more housing, you have to build skyscrapers. We're going to turn everything into midtown Manhattan. If you built six to eight story buildings all the way up to the curb line. So one of the things about Paris is you have very narrow streets and very narrow sidewalks and the buildings go all the way up to the sidewalk. So all of the land on you that you can build on, you build every inch of that. We have setbacks in San Francisco. You have to have yards. You have to have setbacks from your neighbors. We could get a lot more housing and look more like Paris and not look like mid midtown Manhattan, but that's not even on the table for discussion. I guess the other thing I would add, and I, I'm trying to be... Um you know, intellectually honest here that I do very much appreciate the architecture of San Francisco that, you know, the painted ladies and other um, just, just just beautiful doorways and, and things that would be lost when those six to eight story units uh, came into existence. At the same time, there's an unseen aspect to it that I think is important to remember. You know, Lamberto mentioned this, that it, it haunts me, I guess, since I when I think about these pleasant places, these are places for rich people. They are places for, it's a museum where um, only rich people can live. Uh, it's pretty much a museum where only rich people can visit <laughs> uh, unless you're going to make a commute from the way outside as a tourist to, to get in there. Uh, you know, even the, the, all the hotels, the Airbnbs even, uh, it's very expensive to have the, to be privileged enough to be able to walk around that neighborhood uh, when you wake up. <laughs> You've got to come from a long way if you're going to afford it. And I just think... Um, 
And we're also not asking the rich people who own land or houses in those neighborhoods to pay for it. So if they want to preserve their big house with a yard in San Francisco and not allow somebody to build, they should at least have to sort of contribute funds to, you know, the, the city to build housing elsewhere. Like, like a carbon offset for the, for the big carbon footprint folks. Uh, and I should mention, we haven't talked about this, but of course, higher density is much better for the environment. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, California is the worst offender on this because of Prop 13. So you have, Explain. Um, so the, the state capped the increase of property taxes in the, in the late 1970s. Um, so essentially, if you've been in a house for a long time and the house is appreciated in value, you're not paying property taxes on the market value. You're paying property taxes on what the value was when you bought it with a slight increase over time. You know, this, And this is really inequitable just for people who have moved to San Francisco recently or to California recently. You can live in I- an identical house to your neighbor, but they bought it 30 years ago and you bought it yesterday. And the new arrival is paying 10 times what the older person is in property taxes. So the state has really cut off its main source of funding and taken away any incentive for people living in these older, expensive, low-density homes to, to bear essentially the social cost of taking that off of the market for development. If your property tax bill is $500 a year, you have no incentive to turn this over to a developer and allow them to build an apartment building on it. Uh, say something about Houston. You know, For me, Houston is kind of a, uh, an alternative world. I wonder if how true that is. You know, the idea, what's well, part of the, it's in Texas. You know, in Texas, you can carry a firearm and drink while you're driving and build whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want. Is that true? Is I know there's quote less less zoning in in Houston, but is it is it a lot less zoning? Is Houston cheaper per square foot in in Midtown in the down in the densest part of of, of the city for say office space or or residential sp- space? Houston doesn't have zoning the way that other cities do, so they don't have a municipal zoning code. They do have a bunch of restrictive covenants um, that govern certain neighborhoods. So in practice, it has something that functions kind of like zoning. It's not totally the Wild West. Um, you know, land values are cheaper in Houston. Prices are cheaper. The Texas metros have done a much better job of building to accommodate uh, population growth over time. They're also running into some limits, though, because the way that they've built is mostly building farther and farther out into the suburbs. At some sprawl, point, sprawl. Um, at some point, you run into the limit of how far people are willing to drive for their commute. Correct. And when you hit that point, then there's demand to go back and start redeveloping in the center. It's not actually clear that leave leave Houston aside um, because of the zoning issue. But for instance, the city of Dallas um, is easier to build than the city of San Francisco, but it's harder than it used to be. And the city of Dallas is harder to do sort of redevelopment projects than building uh, subdivisions in the suburbs of Dallas. So I think the Texas cities are probably 20 years behind where the East Coast and the West Coast is, but they're going to have to grapple with this too. Let's talk a little bit about that change over time. Um, so... Over time, we've made some zoning, I assume, more restrictive, meaning uh, maybe those minimum setbacks have changed. The heights of the buildings have been more limited. The minimum square footage of a unit maybe has grown. We've banned certain kinds of um, boarding house and and certain types of, of options. Why do you think that's changed over time, right? There's... Have we changed our attitudes about what government can do and therefore when we have this more expansive vision of government, it can be uh, mobilized in this way to protect both existing 
visual attractive things as well as the self-interest of the people who already own land there, the bootlegger Baptist phenomenon. So why has it changed? So, you know, I was making fun of the greedy landlord thing, but how do we understand the greedy politician? I mean, they wanted to make their constituents happy They before 30, 40 years ago. Why is, do you think it's gotten so much more, it appears to have gotten much more restrictive. It's not just, well, it's restrictive and there's certain cities where people want to live. And of course that's pushed up rents. No, there are certain cities where people want to live. Yes. But the ability to move there at, co- at, at, a, at a particular rent has gotten much more expensive because the restrictions have grown at the same time as the demand. Why has that happened, do you think? So on the process side, you can think about sort of the like the end of World War II until maybe the early 60s or so um, as a the time when politicians were very growth minded. So building more stuff increased your tax base and you brought in more companies and that was good. Um, and most you know, most people were just buying their first home, right? So we had this huge expansion of housing in the suburbs in new spaces where there were no neighbors to fuss. And so you could just build subdivisions without any complaints because nobody was there to complain. Um, We had sort of a a series of things that happened starting in the 60s and 70s. Um, So there was pushback against urban renewal where the federal government went into urban neighborhoods tore down what was there, built a bunch of highways through urban neighborhoods, essentially with no community engagement or planning process. The Robert Moses phenomenon. The Robert Moses. But it happened all over the country. Um, and a lot of this was tied to building federal highways through cities. And there was a you know reaction towards that. It's not good for the federal government to just take land by eminent domain, kick people out, tear things down, and sort of shove them off wherever they can go. Building on that in the 70s, you started to get the environmental movement we should think about the environmental impacts of what we're building and have a process before you start building to think about what the impacts are going to be. And so both the the community planning process that came out of urban renewal and the environmental push started to merge together to say, every time we build anything, but especially big projects, the community, however you define that, needs to be consulted, needs to get a chance to weigh in and to provide feedback to public officials. You know, a lot of this came from the idea that poor people and minorities were getting bulldozed in urban renewal. We should give them more voice. But this movement has been co-opted by rich white people who now have said, well, the community needs to be engaged and the community is us. And when you ask our opinion, our opinion is don't build anything and don't change anything. (laughs) And that's, you know, the, the the community planning process and engagement process has just become the norm Elected officials everywhere don't want to push back against their constituents. I don't know how you get people back to realizing that when I buy a piece of property, I can do, I I have some say in what I can do on my property, but I don't have the right to control what my neighbors do with their property. Because once we've sort of made the shift that you should, in fact, be able to weigh in on your neighbor's property and what they can build, it's very hard to reverse that. Yeah, we talked about the fact that neighbors can show up at these hearings. In one article I recently read about, about these issues, uh, a developer said there were over a hundred meetings. So it's not like two. <laughs> just, just kind of, kind of strange. One of the things that um, crosses my mind. I don't know if it, what direction it goes, but America's cities over the last forty to fifty years have become uh, much more politically liberal. Um, the urban rural or urban suburban divide is not just a question of density it's a question of of political preference uh 
most American cities, I think, have a Democratic mayor. Um, not all, but many. Uh, and it's not that it's a Democrat. I don't think that's what's so important. It's that there's not a lot of competition at the mayoral at the, by election time. The, the it's going to be a route. Um, and there's some cities that where it's always going to be a Republican, by the way. So again, it's just that some of the more headliner cities have been Democratic, have had Democrats in off, in office for a long, long time. Uh, and I would think that that would reduce that lack of competition would have an impact on um, responsiveness. Now, the problem with my claim is that they are responsive. They're responsive to the existing homeowners, but I think there's also a more complicated dynamic there with. You know, developers, the ones we're talking about, obviously, uh, competition among developers is good for prices for buyers of, of land and renters. But when you have a handful who are good friends with that politician who's going to be there forever, and I, I, there's something going on there that, that I think uh, is part of the story. I didn't say that very well, but um, I feel like there's a certain dysfunctionality in in urban governance these days, N not again Republican Democrat, but just um, one party. The lack of political competition definitely hurts because parts of the city that want change don't really have a venue to push. And I, I think it's it, it's not whether it's liberal or democratic or who the mayor is uh, is beholden to, but change is scary and change is hard. So mayors have an easier time getting reelected if they just don't push for too much change, particularly in the cities that are doing well. So I think there are different dynamics in, you know, a Detroit or a Cleveland where the city is sort of struggling to hang on, although even there, there's fear of change. Um, so people are worried about anything that's different than what they have. But what we, it's not just that there isn't competition between the Democratic and Republican parties when the mayor gets up for re-election. There's often not competition within the party in the primaries. An awful lot of mayors and even more city councilors never have an opponent. So whether they're responsive to people or not, you know, what are you going to do? You can write letters and you can yell, but there isn't somebody to vote against. And people choose their, to protest by not showing up to vote. So when people just disengage from the local political process altogether, it's easier for the incumbents to just keep getting reelected by not doing anything. So let's talk about what might be done about this. Um, historically, uh, zoning and land use regulation is the most local issue. Uh, but for the first time, there are people at least talking about both statewide and uh, federal intervention. Um, I, I just want to say there is a role for shame and culture that, that we're alluding to in our conversation that there was a time when people felt, you know, it's your house, you can paint it whatever color you want. And now it's like, it's your house and I should have a say in. And that, that change is going to make a difference when if people feel that way. Uh, but I'd like, and I'd like to think that, you know, listeners to Econ Talk might feel a little more guilty showing up at that neighborhood meeting to keep out poor people from the neighborhood. Um, but that's kind of a distant hope. Uh, what kind of interventions are people talking about that might uh, be more uh, immediate? 
Well, as an economist, I'd like to think that we can use fiscal tools to change people's behavior. Um, And some of the homeowner behavior is motivated by financial concerns. So if you are worried about protecting the value of your property, then you're going to defend that. Um, But if we change your financial incentives, um, if we either offer you money to behave in a different way or take away money that you already get, if you don't reform your zoning or reform your process, that could be effective. Um, so, you know, I, I think this is something worth trying. The hard part is figuring out what are the financial levers that either— How do you sta- specify it? You know, how, do you, how do you do it in a way that actually is going to make things better rather than just meant worse? Yeah. So, if, you know, if I got to design the right intervention, um, rather than say— Rather than set the target for local governments, you need to change your zoning on paper. I'd say you need to produce more housing units, and some of the housing units that you build need to be below the median price that's there now, because that's really what we want, is for them to build more housing and build housing that's cheaper than what's currently available. And those are actual—we could come up with quantitative targets or some sort of range. When you say you you need to build, you don't literally necessarily—you don't necessarily mean that the city would build it. You need to change your regulations in a way that would lead to more, right? The city needs to allow private sector developers to build more housing and to build at a wider range of price points. Um, And, you know, the city has to figure out what they need to change in their current systems because it's not going to be exactly the same thing they need to change in every city. So giving them all a quantitative target to hit, and then if they don't hit it, we're going to take away money. Um, States, I think, are in a good position to do this because they do a lot of redistribution across local governments within the state. So most of them give money to local governments for school systems, which they care about a lot. They give money for roads. They give money for um, police and fire and emergency services. So state governments have a bunch of pots of money that they move around, and they could withhold some of that money from local governments that are really being bad actors and not contributing enough housing. The problem is that to get something like that through a state legislature, you have to get state legislators to vote for it. And those legislators come from the exclusionary places. So California has been trying this. And you can see that the people who sit in Sacramento but come from the exclusionary suburbs are voting exactly the way you would expect them to vote. You know, a governor who really took this on as a signature issue and was willing to put some of their political capital behind it and potentially not get reelected but get something done in the meantime might be able to push forward. But this is a heavy lift for the governors. So I want to mention a really creative idea I read about uh, an article by Judge Glock of the uh, Cicero Institute, which um, policy group in uh, the Bay Area. It's a genius idea uh, on the surface. It, I don't know if it would actually work, but the idea is that a developer who somehow in San Francisco manages to um, get a, a product, a project approved, a building approved in the Bay Area, and by the way, um, I just. From his article, uh, he, he gives you some examples of how challenging that is in, in the Bay Area. He says a typical example is the planning department's east-south-of-market neighborhood plan drafted in 2008. The plan lays out 42 separate objectives the city wants to achieve through development with no ability to rank them in case they conflict, as many clearly do. Objective 4.8 aims to, quote, encourage alternatives to car ownership and the reduction of private vehicle trips, while Objective 4.9, only one over, aims to facilitate movement of automobiles. <laughs> the reader's despair only increases when, re- when one realizes that each of these objectives also contain numberless policy subhead- subheadings, exhorting urban planners to fulfill indecipherable goals such as policy number 8.5.3, demonstrate preservation leadership. So, the Bay Area is really hard. 
okay? And once you get through all these, you've done your best to achieve, to comply with the 42 goals and you've gone to all the 83 hearings and, and it's looking good, you still can lose the vote on the 84th hearing and you're out of luck. Uh, and what, what Glock recommends, which is um, a brilliant idea in this piece, is that in addition to all these hurdles, there are substantial fees, out-of-pocket fees for any developer. They are very, very large. Um, they can be millions of dollars, if I remember correctly from the article. His genius idea is, what if we redistributed those to the people in the neighborhood? Now, San Francisco is really curious. It's, it, there are other cities like it, but San Francisco is particularly uh, neighborly, uh, neighborhoody. Uh, there's whatever it was, um, I don't know, there's dozens and dozens of little enclaves with their own rules. There's Bernal Heights, there's the Mission, there's uh, Hayes Valley, which is not a farm area. There's Haight-Ashbury, et cetera, et cetera. So all these little areas have their own rules. And to build at any one of them is extremely difficult. But what if when you built there, there was the fees that currently go to the government instead went to the residents as a compensation for the fact that there will be more congestion. So it's not an unreasonable thing to make it hard to, to build, but let's give people the incentive to support it who will then lead to a better city overall, perhaps, perhaps. But I thought that was a, an extraordinarily um, interesting idea that would transform the not in my backyard to, hey, yeah, yeah, in my backyard. And the amount of money he was talking about is, uh, you know, could be, say, $2,000 to a family of four, and it, it, a politician trying to explain why they're against that is going to have constituents calling uh, for the first time saying, yes, in my backyard. So what do you think of that idea? In theory, it could work. I think the structure of how you set it up matters quite a lot. Um, and we actually have some versions of that that happen now um, so the Atlantic Yards redevelopment in Brooklyn around the where the Nets play um, involved pretty substantial essentially payoffs from the developer to the community. One of the hard parts is sort of defining, you know, who's the community who gets to negotiate? Who's the community you have to pay to? Yeah, where did the checks How, go exactly? Where do the checks go? Is it really you're writing a check to everybody who lives in the neighborhood or is it a contribution to a neighborhood school or a park or something. This is already part of the negotiation process. The developers developers are willing to pay to get something done, um, but there on isn't... top of the actual fees that exactly. are written in the legislation. Yeah, but it's it's contentious figuring out who has the right to negotiate. So, say that you have a neighborhood of five thousand residents. Do you have to get a vote of a simple majority of the neighborhood in order for it to go forward? Or is it the people who show up and yell and protest? Because again, the, the larger the group is, the harder it is for the developer to do not just one-off negotiations, but to get an agreement among the whole group and then make them stick to it. We wind up, so in land use, we wind up with holdout problems. If the developer has to get 50% of the landowners to vote for something and you've got 49%, that last person is going to ask for an outrageous payout, right? So that's why we actually have used eminent domain sometimes before right. to get around that. I think in theory, this could work. You would need to set up a process where you can't have one holdout or a handful of holdouts who push back and to figure out sort of, you know, is is the money actually going to go to something that benefits the community? I mean, in some sense, the developer writing a check to everybody in the neighborhood is the simplest process. Kind of like it. Yeah. 
I could live with that. It's kind of like, <laughs> I think somebody should get off this plane because there's a bunch of people who really want to get on the plane. Is there a way that I can convince you? Yes. Here's some money. Here's a ticket. Get off the plane. Thank you. We're both, wow. everybody's happier. Um, of course, there's still externalities. There's still neighborhoods near the neighborhood that takes it. So it's, it's, I understand it's not straightforward. It's a little bit tricky. And it would have to be structured, uh, obviously, in a particular way to make it work. Do you know anything about the Hudson Yards project, by the way, which is this massive, massive, extraordinary, uh, in a way, exhilarating human achievement? But I, I suspect there were some payoffs there that, that uh, allowed that to happen. Well, there were very big subsidies involved. Um, New York is a really interesting the example. The opposite. Payments from the government to the developers or vice yes. versa? Yeah. Yes, payments from the government to the developers <laughs> to make it happen. Um, yeah, New York is an interesting example because the city has a, a process for developing plan, uh, ULERP, the U- Uniform Land Use Reform Process, um, that's incredibly complicated and difficult to work through, but the state... Empire Development Corporation can take control of projects if they are big enough and important enough. And so developers would often try to go around the city process and go to the state who is more friendly to development because Albany doesn't care what gets built in Manhattan. Um, so most, As much. So most of the big projects that have happened in New York have circumvented the city's land use process and gone through the state. The state has kicked back some subsidies for things that they think will have a, a good long-term payoff. Atlantic Yards in Brooklyn, Hudson Yards in New York. Um, the proposal actually for the new uh, HQ2 headquarters, Amazon headquarters in Queens, would have gone through the state process as well before that got nixed altogether. Um, and, you know, again, I think this goes back to the state has an incentive to get stuff built because it cares about the regional economic growth and development. The city has you know, either has less of an incentive to build or has these sort of local political pressures to make it happen. And so in some sense, removing the problem to a higher level of government that has a larger interest and also has, you know, less direct political pressure, I think is one of the ways that we could make some headway on this. So let's close talking about optimism. You point out in a recent article um, that this issue uh, is on the burner it's in it's in we're in the people are paying attention to it for really the first time in a while um it's not just about affordable house house prices or how many or home ownership it's about rent rate rental rates which is you know it's surprising right that it's getting a little bit of political traction um do you think anything's going to happen is there um do you see encouraging signs for me you know i'm always looking at emergent phenomena like these end-arounds, Airbnb, and and these um, co-living uh, creative ideas. Think, think this is going to change? We're talking about it, which is a good first step. You yeah. can't change it until you start talking about it. Uh, there are, I mean, there are a number of different proposals. Um, for the first time, people are actually talking about whether the federal government could get engaged, could use some of these financial carrots and sticks for instance, um, attaching strings to federal transportation dollars that local governments are going to have to reform their zoning and build more. Um, the federal government doesn't have a ton of these financial carrots and sticks, but it has a really big bully pulpit. So an administration or a Congress that really wanted to make this a big deal and talked about this frequently, you know, named and shamed the worst players and had some financial leverage, I think, could help move the needle. Um, 
There are a handful of states that are really most of the problem, and most of those states are now talking about it at the state house level. Um, so they could make some some progress as well. You know, I think one of the one of the concerning things is that we've got both what I think of as constructive proposals, like let's not spend federal money building a light rail system in a place that's only single family homes. You know, let's use our infrastructure dollars wisely. But there are also proposals mostly on the left at this point for things that are less constructive, like let's have national rent control or let's have lots of tenant protections, which we may or may not be able to enforce and may have the potential actually for hurting vulnerable tenants the most. The thing that really drives me crazy is people want to subsidize poor people's rents, which is going to drive up the rents for the people who don't qualify for the subsidy and, and so on. I, I just sorry for interrupting. I I I want to close on a different note. To I, I want to say the following. Um, I think you and I see eye to eye. I, I don't know your work very well. I, in preparing for this interview, I read as much as I could of of what you write. Um, I there's not much I disagree with. Um, so this has been a little bit of a choir uh, singing here. I think it's important to hear that choir just because. Uh, it's such an important issue. I think it has ramifications way beyond, you know, urban development. I think it's an it's an important national question for people now in areas that are struggling economically that can't move to these areas. I think it's a terrible thing that we've made it harder to move and mobility is down in the United States. So I'm really passionate about it. But we've kind of gotten up on our moral high ground here and said, yeah, all the people who agree with us are awful people. Well, there's a few who think it's okay to live in a beautiful city that doesn't change, but most of them are just self-interested existing landlords. Is there, are we missing anything here? Do you think, is there someone who could be sitting, listening in this conversation and saying, boy, these guys are really missing the boat here? Or do we, is there another side to this that I'm missing, that you're missing? I mean, I think economists have to remember that people are attached to the places they live. So some of the resistance really is nimbyism in the worst way. Some of it- Not in my backyard. Not in my backyard. Um, Some of it is thinly veiled racism and classism. I don't want poor people living next to me. Some of it is, at least, uh, you know, I think people think that they are arguing for environmentally uh, beneficial policies, although I think they're not. Um, But there are a lot of people who just like their neighborhood the way it is, and they don't want it to change. And that's true for poor people and rich people. That's true for people in cities that are doing well and cities that are declining. Most people, once they get to a place and they've been there for a few years, they don't want things to change. Denying that makes it harder to have a conversation. So telling people, you have to accept an apartment building next to your house, whether you like it or not, and I don't care whether you like it doesn't help you win votes. So somehow I think we have to have a conversation with with people who resist, who maybe don't understand the implications of their personal behavior. You want to stop an apartment building next door to you. That has ramifications for the people who could live there, for the city, for the country, for people who live in another city who can't afford to move here. Um, but we understand that you don't want things to change overnight. We understand that change is scary. We want to we want to make their make cities be a place of economic opportunity for everybody without making them unwelcoming and threatening to the people who currently live there and that's that's hard it's hard to make the change that you need but to do it at a pace that people are comfortable with and i think we don't often have we don't have the right language we can't get people in a room where they leave aside the pretense and talk to one another as human beings understanding the effects of what they're doing 
My guest today has been Jenny Schutz. Jenny, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.